Brian and Jill had a little girl last uh, Friday, seven pounds, seven ounces, 19 and a half inches long, Julia Christine. Uh, we've got a string of girls going now, four in a row, and uh, we can hardly wait to get our hands on her. Would you turn with me, please, to uh, 1 Samuel 18? Some of you may remember the uh, movie, I think it was a made-for-television movie, Brian's Song. Uh, it's the story of Gail Sayers and uh, Brian Piccolo's friendship. Uh, Sayers and Piccolo, as you may know, were running backs for the Chicago Bears back in the 1960s, 67, 68, 69. Uh, Sayers, of course, is the better known of the, uh, of the two. Um, In 1969, Piccolo uh, developed cancer, and Brian's song is about their friendship and their heroic efforts to try to beat that terrible disease. But uh, finally, uh, in the final months of 1969, Piccolo died and was awarded posthumously the George Hallis Award by the uh, sports writers, uh, the uh, Football Sports Writers Association. And at their annual banquet, Sayers accepted the award for Piccolo, and that was one of the most poignant scenes in the movie, if, if, you, if you saw it. Uh, Sayers had a prepared text, which he uh, uh, wasn't able to deliver. Uh, he, he could only get out two sentences. He said, I accept this award for Brian Piccolo, and then he broke up. And he said, I loved Brian Piccolo. Now, there's something about that story that... Uh, that really tugs at us. I, most people that saw it commented on it the next day because I think what it does is speak to that that deep longing that we all have for a friend like that, someone that would love us to that extent. Uh, I don't know about you. I can do without people, but I can't do without a friend. I need a friend. And this story that we're going to look at uh, this morning has to do with friendship. It's the story of David and Jonathan and their legendary friendship. But the thing that's significant about this story to me is that it not only describes a friendship, it tells us how to make a friend. And I've read a number of books on friendship, and I've read some of the stories of uh, some of the great friends in the past, Damon and Pythias and Ruth and Naomi and others, and they're wonderful stories, but... This is the only story I've ever found that tells us how to make a friend. There's some wonderful uh, bits of truth in this uh, this text. Now I want to begin reading with the first uh, verse of chapter 18. It came about when David had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Uh, Aristotle said that friendship is one soul dwelling in two bodies, and that's almost exactly the same idiom that that the writer uses here long before the time of Aristotle. The soul of Jonathan was literally bound up with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Three times in this story we're told that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a, made a covenant with David. If you notice in most texts, there's a side note here that literally the text says, Jonathan made a covenant and David. This was a mutual covenant. They made it with one another, but Jonathan is clearly the initiator. Jonathan made a covenant 
with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. The story begins immediately after David's duel with uh, the giant Goliath. And uh, as he reported to Saul, Jonathan's father, Jonathan overheard. He was listening in. And the text says there was an almost immediate empathy with, with David and an attraction to him. Now, that's often how friendships start. They begin with uh, just a natural affection and attraction because two people are interested in the same things. They have the same interests. They have the same outlook. They have the same perspectives. They enjoy the same things. They just like being together and sharing certain activities. And what Jonathan saw in David is that he was the same sort of outrageous, uh, gopher-broke, swashbuckling person that... uh, that he was. When we first meet Jonathan, he's taking on a garrison of Philistines all by himself. He and his armor bearer. A group of Philistines has set up a forward observer's post up on top of a cliff that overlooked the Israeli army, and they had pinned the army down. The army was unable to move. They were paralyzed, not only by the Philistines, but by Saul's lack of faith and inactivity. And, and Jonathan uh, scaled this almost sheer cliff up the Wadi Sawainet, up to the top of that cliff and, and chase the Philistines from, uh, from, that, from their outpost. And Jonathan saw in David that he had the, had the same spirit, same outlook. He was the same kind of person. And that's very often how friendships begin. You like to fish together, you like to hunt together, you like to shop together, you like to talk about the same things, you're interested in politics, you're interested in gardening, you like to hang glide, whatever, you play racquetball together, but there's a mutual interest in a, and a friendship begins. And what, what usually happens is that, that that affinity, that first attraction becomes affection. You begin to really like each other and you want to hang around with each other, and that's exactly what happened here with Jonathan and David. I recall a story that came out of the Vietnam about uh, General William Westmoreland. He was uh, reviewing a company of paratroopers. And as he went down the line, he asked each man the same question. Do you like to jump, son? And they all said, I love to jump, sir. And he finally came to the last uh, trooper, kind of smallish uh, fellow that was standing at the end of the line. And he said, do you like to jump, son? He said, I hate to jump, sir. And he said, then why do you jump, son? He said, because I want to be around men who'd like to jump. And I think that's what drew Jonathan and David together. They were people who liked to jump. They just enjoyed one another. But that, uh, that rapidly developed into, into a deep friendship. And uh, sometime later, Jonathan took David to his tent and uh, he affirmed his love for him. And we're told that he made a covenant with David, a covenant of, of friendship. That's the sort of thing you do when you're child when you swear a blood oath to each other and you just agree to be friends for life. And then uh, Jonathan took off his armor, took off his robe and his armor and his bow and his weapons and he gave them to David. Uh, That's the sort of thing that was done then. 
to seal a, a friendship. It was customary in, in those days to exchange gifts. The only problem was David had nothing to give. David had no armor. He had no weapons other than the sword of Goliath that he'd just taken off of the giant. He had nothing to exchange. And not only did he not have any armor, he had very little love to give back. David was, a, uh, both from the stories of his childhood and from his writings, uh, you pick up the impression that David was was profoundly disturbed in his in his origins he was a uh, he was a neglected child probably an unwanted child there's some evidence that he was illegitimate certainly Jesse did not want him to come to the house when Samuel came to anoint the king and he was overlooked and probably abused and he grew up very insecure very unsure of himself and uh, he didn't have anything to give but at this point, Jonathan began to give him love, and he began to flourish. This uh, giving of armor for me is, is emblematic of really the essence of friendship, because that's what friendship is. It's, it's giving. It's caring about another person. It's wanting them to see, wanting to see them come into their own, wanting them to gain everything that, uh, that they possibly can, wanting them to be a success far more than we we want ourselves to be successful. It's difficult to do because we all want someone to minister to us, but uh, friendship turns that around and, and it says that basically what we have to do is minister to the other person, care for them, and look out for their best interests. Remember Barnabas, the fellow we talked about two weeks ago, who was constantly seeking the best of those that he, that he befriended. And uh, it seems that as... Uh, as David grew under that sponsorship and friendship, he, he did become successful. Uh, we're told that, uh, that he prospered. The word means success. He was successful. And Saul set him over the men of war. And, and uh, one day, as David was coming back uh, from battle, the women were singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And, and that triggered Saul's jealousy. And uh, verse 9 tells us that Saul looked at David with suspicion from that, from that day on. He had, as we would say today, an attitude, didn't like David, uh, was angry because David was uh, receiving the praise that he thought he, he ought to receive. And uh, F.B. Myers, in commenting on this story, says that that jealousy was a hell spark that Saul shouldn't, should have trodden underfoot at this point, but he didn't, and it developed into a white-hot fury that caused him to try to kill David. In verse 10, we're told that David was playing the harp before Saul. And Saul hurled, hurled a spear at him, tried to pin him at the wall. It happened twice. David, David escaped. And in the chapter that follows, from verses 13 on, there's an account of some of the palace intrigue and Saul's efforts to try to undo him in various ways. And uh, then in chapter 19, verse 1. We're told that Saul told Jonathan and his son, and uh, Jonathan his son, and all his servants to put uh, put David to death. Now, now Jonathan is in this terrible crisis. This insane—he's caught between this insanely jealous father and and his love for David. Saul, Saul wants to kill his best friend. You may never be asked to kill your best friend, but uh, you may be asked to assassinate his his character. Yeah, but. Uh, here, Jonathan is the reconciler. He, he's the friend that walks in when, 
when everyone else walks walks out. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father is seeking to put you to death. Now therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and and hide yourself. And then the, the paragraph goes on to describe Jonathan's efforts to try to reconcile Saul and, and David. And verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be shall not be put to death. When, when Saul was first anointed king, God was with him. But shortly after, we're told the Lord departed from Saul, and he fell into this dark, depressed state, and eventually went uh, went insane. And Jonathan watched all of that. He saw his father deteriorate as he departed farther and farther from the Lord. And Samuel then said to Saul, The Lord has departed from you. God's going to raise up a man who's after his own heart. And that could have been Jonathan, because Jonathan was the heir apparent. He was the next in line. He was the oldest uh, son of, of Saul and would have been in that dynasty that uh, uh, that uh, ascended to the throne. But uh, it wasn't Jonathan. It was David. And apparently in their conversations together, David had told Jonathan about the secret anointing that Samuel had, uh, in which he had been anointed king over, over Israel. And Jonathan now is faced with this dilemma. He was the heir apparent. He should have been the next king. But he knew that it was God's will for David to take the throne. And so he began to do everything that he could to see to it that David was able to, that David received everything he had coming to him, so that David would, could come into his own. And uh, in chapter 20, we're told, as, the, as this jealousy uh, developed and as it became more intense, David fled from Nath to in Ramah and came and and said to Jonathan, David had fled to Samuel and he had gained sanctuary there and and then when, when Saul discovered that he was in hiding and came to kill him, David fled back to, back to Jonathan. And he said, what have I done? What, what is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he's, he's seeking my life? And Jonathan said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. It, Something I think of of Jonathan's guilelessness that he still could not believe that his father was trying to assassinate David. Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and you live, there's hardly a step between me and death. That's, uh, that's our idiom. One, one foot already in the grave. David knew that he was in dire danger. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'll do for you. So they, they, they dreamed up a, a scheme. And uh, David said to Jonathan, there's, a, there's a, a, a festival coming up, a new moon festival. And Saul will expect me to be there. And David knew his life would be in danger that Saul would try to kill him while he was at the festival. So he planned to not attend. And he said to Jonathan, tell, tell your father that I'm, I have some family business in Bethlehem and, and let's see what his intentions are. Let's see if he really does care to, uh, 
He really is trying to take my life. And that's exactly what they did. And uh, the first day, David was not not at the uh, festival, and Saul inquired about his presence. And Jonathan said, that, told Saul that he was in Bethlehem. The second day, he was not there, and 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 Saul was outraged. Verse thirty of chapter twenty. And Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. He said to him, "You son of a perverse, rebellious woman." That is exactly our our idiom. Do I not know that you're choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death, a a, a sort of masterpiece of understatement there. (laughs) Then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had had dishonored him. Now you need to take a good hard look again at what Jonathan was facing. It becomes very clear in this passage that Jonathan knew that it was Saul's intention to place him on the throne. And uh, it, it, wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be easy to give up the potential that, that he had, the opportunity to reign over Israel for the good of his, of his friend Jonathan, uh, his friend David. Uh, imagine... Uh, yourself as an executive in some organization, and along comes a young, uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed MBA from, from Harvard or Stanford, and, and you're given the responsibility to tutor that young man, and you know that he's going to take your place. That's not easy. And sometimes when we talk about serving and giving and caring for others, we give the impression that uh, this is something that uh, comes quite easily to us, but it really doesn't. And I think it's very guilt-producing to present it as something that's easy. It's very hard to give and, and to serve. It's something that only God can equip us to do. But it's what God asked Jonathan to do, to see to it that David became successful, that David came into his own, that he became everything that, that God wanted him to, uh, uh, to become. And uh, back in verse 12 of chapter 20, as they were discussing this... Uh, uh, discussing their plan. Jonathan said, verse 13, If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not make it known to you, and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. See, again, David knew, or Jonathan knew, that David was called to be the next king. And if I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord? Now, that phrase will occur a number of times in the story, the loving kindness of the Lord. That word loving kindness is the word that's used all the way through the Old Testament to refer to God's loyalty to his own covenant. What God promises, he delivers. God sticks to us no matter what. And that's the point of Jonathan's uh, statement. Stay with me the way God stays with us. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. Now I appeal to you 
to show me the, the loyalty, the loving kindness of the Lord. And you shall not cut off your loyalty from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Now, let's go back a minute and think about the progress of this friendship. It begins with Jonathan initiating the relationship and cultivating and nurturing it and caring for this uh, this young man. And now David is, come, uh, is coming into a, a position of power and responsibility. And uh, Jonathan asked him to reciprocate, take care of my family, he says. And David did that. Jonathan had a young, young son, a young crippled boy, Mephibosheth. He'd, he'd been dropped when he was a baby and, and crippled for life. And... Uh, David took in Mephibosheth after Jonathan was killed at the Battle of Gilboa and, and cared for this young man, the only survivor of, of Jonathan's, uh, Jonathan's family. Now, there's another phrase that reoccurs in this, uh, uh, in this chapter. It shows up in verse 23. As for the agreement of which I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And then again in verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be, will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Now we're introduced to a, two, to a new element of, of friendship. And this is a dimension of friendship that only people that know God can experience. Now people without God can develop firm and fast and lasting relationships. They can know friendship. They can uh, they have the same attractions and affections, and they can develop love for one another, and there can be a large measure of giving. There are stories throughout history of uh, men and women that have given up their lives for one another. And as Jesus put it, there is no greater love than laying down your life for a friend. They've given up their money, their energy, their time, They've ministered to one another. Those are all elements that you find in merely human friendships. But there is a spiritual dimension to a friendship that only those that know God can enter into. And going back to Aristotle's uh, statement that uh, friendship is uh, one soul dwelling in two bodies, I think that can only be true of believers. As a matter of fact, Luke, who certainly knew Aristotle's uh, teaching, uh, says in his description of the early church in the book of Acts that those people in that, in that early gathering of believers were of one soul. They had one soul. And Paul says in the, uh, in the book of Philippians that we are to have one soul. So what Aristotle talked about is only capable, I think, in terms of our relationship to God. When, a relation, when, when men and women are centered on God, they're capable of a friendship that they are incapable of in any other, in any other dimension. And this is why. Because when God is at the center of our lives, we don't need, desperately need, a friend. The worst friends are people that need friends in the worst sort of way. Those are the people that curse us with their demands. We all know people like that. 
that, uh, that need something so desperately that they, they just wear us out. But once we've learned of the love of God, then we can truly love people. John puts it that way. We love because God first loved us. And once we understand that we're deeply loved, we're deeply cared for, we're secure in that love, it sets us free to love others. Now, we will always feel a need for friends, and there will be times that people will disappoint us and we'll feel real hurt and, and pain. We're, we're only human. And uh, as uh, God himself said, it's not good for us to be alone. Being alone is hurtful, and, and we, uh, we experience a lot of uh, discomfort. But uh, knowing that God loves us frees us from an inordinate need for love. We don't have to demand it. We don't have to expect it. We don't have to be controlled by that uh, need of love. Uh, Carolyn and I were talking to a friend recently about uh, this, this issue, and he made what I think was a very helpful comment. He said, you can know when your need for love and friendship is controlling you if when someone doesn't come through, a friend doesn't come through, and your attitude toward that person changes. That's very, uh, that's very discerning. If in my longing for love and acceptance and friendship someone does not meet my needs, what, what do I do? Do I withdraw? Do I get cold? Do I cease to try to cultivate the relationship? Do I pull into my shell? But if my attitude doesn't change, if I go back and remind myself again of my Lord's undying love for me and his commitment to me, and then I'm free to love others as God loves me, then I know that I'm not controlled by, that, by those demands. And you see, that's the, that's the element that sets us free to love one another. Now, there's one final dimension. Would you turn to chapter 23? David and Jonathan uh, separated. David went into exile, and that story will, will be told in the next ten chapters of 1 Samuel. And then in verse 16 of chapter 23, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish. The word Horish means uh, thicket. David had gone across the Judean mountains into the wilderness on the other side, over in the area that uh, today is dominated by uh, by the by Matsada, that famous mountain over by the, the Salt Sea. And he was in hiding there in the desert. And Jonathan found him. And he came to David at, at Horish. And he encouraged him in God. And he said to him, Don't be afraid, because the, the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. And and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And, and Saul, my father, knows that, that also. The word encouraged him in God is, uh, in the text, is just the statement that he strengthened his grip on God. He strengthened his grip on God. And that, you see, is another dimension that's missing from, from a friendship that is a friendship formed without without God, because the ultimate goal of all friendship is mutual discipleship. It's to help one another get a better grip on God. 
it, it means uh, taking time to, to give a word of encouragement to one another, to remind one another of the promises of, of God, to strengthen our, our faith, to stiffen our, our spine. What, what Jonathan did for David is simply remind him that, that God had promised that he would be, uh, he would be the king. And he uh, enabled him to draw his consolation and comfort from that, from that promise. And that, that strengthened David. It stiffened his, his resolve. And, and that's what we can do for one another. Uh, Carolyn has a friend who frequently calls her from California and just asks if Carolyn will pray for her because she's facing some difficult situation. And Carolyn will pray for her over the, over the phone and strengthen her grip on God. And ultimately, that's what it means to be a friend, not just to hang out with one another, not just to talk, not just fun and games and, and wit and laughter. It's that added element of helping one another come into our own, you see, and grow up to full maturity in, in Christ. That's why for a Christian, friendship is ultimately mutual discipleship. It slopes never one way. It's always mutual. We're always strengthening one another. And I have to ask myself, and I ask you, to what extent is that element true in the friendships that you have? Are they centered around God? Are you each gaining your strength from God so that you're not, you don't need to gain your strength from one another? And then when you get together, you use the strength that you've received from God to foster one another's growth in God and encourage one another onto uh, to maturity. Now, this was the last that David and Jonathan saw of each other. Uh, Jonathan shortly afterward was uh, killed on the mountains of Gilboa in a battle with the Philistines. And in chapter in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 17 uh, there's included in that chapter David's eulogy that he chanted over the grave of Jonathan verse 17 David chanted with this lament, lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of, of the bow. Behold, behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. The book of Jasher was a book of men who had the men and women that had the right stuff. Jasher means righteousness. And it's a book of the great heroes of faith uh, drawn from uh, the Old Testament. And as a matter of fact, some of the stories, or actually it's the other way around, some of the stories in the Old Testament were drawn from this book of, of Jasher. And apparently it was a book that was used as a, a kind of training manual for these uh, young men that were preparing for war to teach them to, to act in, in faith, to show them that their courage and their endurance comes from faith. As David would put it, it's by God that I have run through a troop. It's by God that I can scale a wall. It was to build their, their confidence in God. And as they learned to shoot their bows, they chanted these, uh, this particular song. And I won't read the entire uh, song, but uh, let me uh, begin with verse 23. Beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not, uh, not parted. Jonathan never revolted against his father. Throughout his life, he was caught between Saul's jealousy for David and his love for David, but he never rebelled against his father. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. 
I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very, very pleasant to me. It's actually the word uh, for dear or precious in the Old Testament. That's not a sentiment that men normally express for one another, but uh, gives you some idea of the depth of their of their relationship. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. Now, that's a remarkable statement. Your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. Now, what did David uh, mean? Well, the word for wonderful here is a word that's used throughout the Old Testament for God's historic and cosmic acts. They're, They're works that incite wonder and amazement. And uh, what David is saying is that the relationship that I had with Jonathan was extraordinary. You expect men and women to love each other. And that seems to come a little more naturally. But it's, it's very unusual to find men who really love each other to this extent, who are not only willing to lay their lives down for one another, but who lay their lives down for one another in order to see the other person come into the, the wholeness of their relationship with, with God. That's wonderful. And apparently this is uh, something only God can do. That's the point. Uh, Henry David Thoreau said that friendship is a divine league forever struck. Thoreau was not a believer, as far as I know. And yet he had some taste of what it meant to be a friend. He had a a number of friends that uh, he was associated with throughout his lifetime. And and I think he longed for this kind of league or covenant, a divine covenant, forever struck, but uh, never experienced it. And we can't either, apart from God. It takes God in the center of our life, God in the center of our relationship before we can ever have a friendship that's forged by God. A divine leak forever struck. Now let me just leave you with this one thought, this simple story. Friendship begins with, uh, with attraction and affinity for one another and it often develops into real affection and that affection becomes real love and that love is demonstrated by giving and and that's the highest order of friendship that the world can know. Even, you know, it, it may involve uh, giving of one's life even, but uh, that's, that's all that the world can know. But there's another dimension of friendship which those in Christ can know, and it's this idea of giving in order to help one another become everything that God wants us to become. And out of this study, I've come to the conclusion that the that friendship is not a matter of finding a friend. You see, that's what we want. We want to find someone to be our friend. Who will be my friend? Who will call me up when I'm lonely? Who will pick me up when I'm on the floor? Who will cheer me up when I'm discouraged? See? Uh, who will minister to me? That's our natural inclination. But friendship is not a matter of finding a friend. Friendship is a matter of being a friend. Uh, the, the way the King James Version puts uh, that proverb in, in Proverbs 18, it, he who hath friends must show himself friendly. See, A friend is someone who is a friend. 
And uh, so if you want to have friends, the thing to do is to befriend someone. That's where you start. See, the initiative starts with you. And with that perspective in mind, there are no end of friends in the world. The whole world is full of friends. People you can minister to. People you can care for. And uh, there can be some reciprocity. Uh, we can expect people to... Uh, to uh, we, can, we can want people to minister to us, but we don't have to demand it. Because in God, we can have our needs satisfied so that we can satisfy the needs of others. Well, let's, let's pray. Father, it's our desire to be, uh, to be good friends. And uh, we thank you for this, uh, this model friendship that's given to us in these, in these verses. And uh, our hearts long for this kind of relationship, and we are we're grateful that you have given to us your spirit and your presence, and you have filled us full with your love so that we can love others in this way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.